And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're reading the second half of Girls Burn Brighter by Shoba Rayo. So that's from page 202 or 203? I don't remember. 203 to the end? Yeah. It's part three in Savitha's part, I think. Yes, it is. You are correct. And on my page, it's 202, but it is part three in Savitha's part in the middle. So what were your first impressions? I know that this is a second read for you, Maggie. Did your perspective change from the first time that you read this book? I think I remembered this book ending with more closure than it actually has. So I got to the end and there was definitely a little part of me that felt like, (laughs) wait, You know, which I think is definitely the point. I think that the open-endedness of this book really emphasizes the ways in which this story doesn't is like just a vignette, a moment in their overall lives, and that things keep going afterwards. And also that there is a really big level of uncertainty, and like willpower isn't the only thing you need in these situations. Like you also need a healthy amount of luck. But I think that that was my biggest takeaway, like the biggest thing that I misremembered was I I remembered having more closure from this book. What about you? What were your impressions of the ending? I'm trying to find the message that I sent you, but we text so often that it's a little difficult. (laughs) Harmony and I are a little codependent. It's okay. Just a little. No one has to unpack that at all. Just let that statement sit as it is. <laughs> I wonder if it's like visible through the podcast. Yes, here it is. Um, this goddamn book. That was that was my response after I finished reading. So I think I feel bad for last week Harmony because she was so sweet and naive and she was like, This book is hopeful. Things are gonna be okay. Like, yeah, it's gotten a little dark towards the end, but you know, I think things are gonna pick up again. And then I read this second half, and um, especially towards the end, it gets real, real bleak. And there's literally a moment in which Savitha's like, they didn't didn't swallow me whole as a crow, and, and I have no hope left. And we don't ever get to see whether or not that's resolved. I mean, we get this hint, or like, I mean, it's pretty clear that Savitha and Poranima are going to reunite. But we don't get to see, uh, yeah, there's no there's no resolution. So that was a choice that I'm sure was deliberate, but made me as a reader who is invested in the story of these two girls very disappointed. I'm sure from a craft standpoint, though, it has a ton of merit. So I guess that we will think about that together. I mean, do you want to, do you think this has merit? Like, what is the point of this? What is, what is the point of leaving us in this open ending i think that first of all last week harmony was very naive it's true (laughs) uh i do still stand by the fact though that i think that this book overall has a slightly more hopeful tone than i remembered it being like the second half of the book is a hard read fucked up stuff is happening left and right but i think that some of the I, I think that the more hopeful tones in the first half sort of help to balance it a little bit. Um, I think that there's a couple of things happening with this open ending. One, I think that it is heavily implied that they're going to find each other again. They're sort of circling around each other at the end. I think, like I was saying, it's it implies to a certain extent that, like, that like this story, this moment, is just a moment for them overall in their lives. Um, It's not necessarily the defining thing. Life goes on almost. Mm -hmm. The second thing that it makes me think of is, and this is less than a half-formed thought, but 
I wonder if there's something to be said about, like, the idea that, I don't even know, like, after all these girls have been through in a world that is so voyeuristically looking at them, um, is so concerned with their bodies, uh, what they look like, who they are, for very different reasons, like, it almost feels like this reuniting gets to be just for them. It's a private moment for just the two of them and not even the reader gets to be on it because this love that they have for each other that's their driving force is all they have left and it's just for each other and it doesn't have anything to do with anyone else or any other circumstance. Um, yeah. Then what do you make... I mean, there's two things that you said there that I want to touch on, and one of them is the body stuff, because that reminded me about something else that I want to go on a completely different track with in a second. But in my book, it's page 393 is the last page, and you were talking about how this is just for them, but it's not, because Mohan is there. And, and the second to last sentence reads, she, and we're talking about poor Nima, just so everyone knows, She smiled, suddenly shy, as if she and Mohan were two lovers. Come upon each other in a grove, in a garden, under summer showers. It's not just for the two of them, because Mohan is there. And we know that Sabitha and Mohan are in love. And now we have this, this intimacy that is threaded through with Poranima as well with him. Um, that I don't think is romantic at all, but, like, this idea that they are all kind of united, these three people. It's not just our our two main characters anymore. I guess that's true. But I, I think, though, that part of the point still stands, that, like, it's not about anyone else but the people who are involved in the situation, which now includes Mohan. Okay. Okay. So now if you're off completely, and I think that we'll come back to this point again to you because now my thoughts are whirling and I wrote nothing down because ADHD, but to veer off a little bit, you were talking a little bit about the fetishization of their bodies, and that reminded me specifically of one, a couple of the most gruesome scenes, I think, for me to read about, which have to do with Sabitha's stub and the way that her stub is repeatedly used to violate her in some fashion. And I wanted to unpack that with you in a safe space. <laughs> yeah, because there was a lot happening there and it was very disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Because in the first half, we kind of learned... I guess it was in the second half, too. It was, it was in the second half. But in the beginning, when she first gets her sub, it's like... It's a loss, and it's not okay, but it's also seen as a reason for men to feel like they can open up to her. And so it almost feels like other people are seeing this and associating it with something positive, right? Like with trust. And so they become more vulnerable themselves. And as the story goes on, once Savitha gets to America a lot of the dialogue around her sub becomes like, I'm going to use this to make you feel disgusting and gross and to violate you in some horrible fashion. And those two, those two different ways of like sexually interacting with the sub is just like, it feels like whiplash for me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think that so I guess, quick plot summary here. What happens in the second part of the book is that essentially Savita wakes up after her operation, goes through, you know, trauma. She's processing what has happened to her. But I think kind of ultimately comes to the conclusion that, like, this was a sacrifice that she was willing to make. Even when she doesn't end up going to Saudi Arabia with the prince, uh, she ends up being sold to a man who lives in Seattle to clean apartments. It sounds like in the university village, honestly. Mm -hmm. And um, while she's there, she is also still forced into sex slavery, essentially. Um, 
so I, I agree with you. There is a weird amount of whiplash. And I think that, and while she's dealing with that trauma, that's when a lot of the uh, imagery about the crow comes back. And I think that there's this like weird idea that I don't even know what to do with that. Like when she gives up, loses her hand, she gives up more than she bargained for because of the way that other people treat her and other people utilize her in the United States. I think something interesting though, that you brought up about the language of it is that men in the U S still overshare with her because of her lack of hand. And it's mostly in sexual circumstances, one circumstance where it isn't explicitly sexual while she's hitchhiking and all of the sharing always ends with essentially the question, so what's the story with your hand, right? Like, how did you lose your hand? Mm-hmm. I don't know how to, like, break any of that down, to be honest. I'm really just talking myself in circles, I think. Um, but you I, t- oh, sorry. I, oh, no, I was just going to say, I guess, it, I guess for me, there's a lot in which she gets broken down into more pieces than she bargained for. Yeah, yeah. I didn't make the connection between, I know this is stupid because they hit you over the head with it, but this whole idea about, like, the the pieces, I didn't make the connection to that, like, actually having to do with bodily pieces, right? Like, Savitha literally gives up her hand, and so they're taking a piece of her. And now that I see that, I have a whole other slew of feelings. Like, well, what does that say about people who have experienced some sort of physical accident or who are born disabled, right? I think, I mean, I think it's untrue, first of all, because I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how the story handles that and whether, like, how I feel about it. But I mean, like, Savita does find love with somebody who treats her normally i i'd say but it's in a really fucked up situation and there are moments right like while she's hitchhiking the majority of people she encounters while hitchhiking are good kind people until the very end and there is another instance in which a man like sees like sees her as who she is and doesn't dwell on her hand like the language behind it is that he he sees it and then he like he doesn't linger too long but he do- he doesn't like shy away from it either. It's just kind of a thing and he accepts it as who she is, right? Which I guess is part of this idea of wholeness, right? Like you can be whole if you are missing something or if something bad has happened to you, but the majority of people are not treating Savita as though she is whole. And then if we're going back to, like, my original question about this idea of, like, what men are doing to her sub, I think what, I don't know what to do with this, but, like, just to kind of clarify it for you, Maggie, and maybe you can take something and do something with this and make some sort of sense. I think what really makes this so horrible for me is that, like, the men are making her do it to herself. Nothing, like... She is being forced into various actions, but the force is you are going to do this because I said so, right? There, you know, a trigger warning for explicit sexual assault in a horrifying and gruesome manner. The two instances that I'm referring to, it has to do with Mohan's brother, whose name I forget. Uh, He makes her put her stub in his butt. And like, that is a very traumatic moment for her in a way that we haven't really seen in terms of sexual assault except for when Pornima's father rapes her like she she seems kind of numb to a lot of the sexual assault until this instance again and then the last time that it happens that that the the sort of fetishization of the sub is when she is hitchhiking right before Pornima and Mo- Mohan end up finding her these men see her at a gas station and use a gun to make her essentially like 
give her I don't I don't know to like put her stub in her mouth and pretend like it's a it's a penis I guess but like it's just so horrifying and I don't know I just I want to figure out the why like why men are doing that like what is the drive behind it and why does it keep happening and what is that fascination right because it's not just like it's not even just fetishization for the sake of fetishization. You know, it's not like somebody being like, I really love fat woman, right? So like, I'm going to only be with fat woman, right? That's a sort of fetishization too. But it's not, it's even worse, I feel like, because it, it turns into violence. And it's like, you're going to reckon with this, for lack of a better term, deformity, right? Like, that's the attitude that I feel like is being thrown at her. Yeah, I think that, sorry, I'm trying to put my thoughts together. It's okay. I know I just threw a lot at you and I know it was very heavy and gruesome. No, no, no. I mean, this is what happens in this half of the book. You know, we, we got to talk about it. Um, I think that the weight of the horror here partially is that it's, it's it's exploiting it's making sure to exploit every bit of perceived power the men have over her um because lots of people lots of abled people view as those who are differently abled as being lower on the societal ladder ranks like lower in the hierarchy and sometimes that comes out in a savior complex, but I think in this book it comes out in a need to exploit that power um, in a really cruel way because it's so dehumanizing. I think it takes a part of her body and it makes it act like object. And then I think on top of that, you know, Savitha's been sold into sex slavery. She's been forcibly drugged. Terrible things have been happening to her. But I think especially when she was still in India having these conversations, she was still able to carve out a place for herself um, and her, like, peace and mental sanity and feel human, you know? Um, like, really just a person who is being talked to um, and she didn't like the sex slavery aspect, obviously, but, you know, one of the things she was excited about when she was moving to the U.S. was that she was hoping she was escaping that part of life and was disappointed when it wasn't happening. But I think it's just this, like, object, objectification, uh, like, literally, of, of treating her like she is just a thing and not a person. Um that makes it hard for her, impossible for her to keep that same peace and mental space that she was, that she had been able to carve out previously. I don't know if any of that made sense, but that's just like my gut reaction to, to sort of what was going down. I don't know that I have an answer to like why people are cruel, which, which I think has come up a lot as a theme in these episodes. (laughs) No, I agree. I agree. That, that is, a thing within girls burn brighter um yeah i think just to thank you for for tackling that maggie and i think just to kind of add to it and to connect it to that piece by piece thing i think it's this idea that like it makes her feel as though she has agency even though she doesn't right like she's being forced to give up these pieces of herself and it's re-traumatizing because she literally gave up her hand because she was kind of forced to (laughs) in order to escape her situation. That's totally the nail on the head, is that there were still places in her life prior to this where she felt like she could carve out agency for herself and what was happening, and this decimates that feeling. Yeah. To go back to your why people are cruel thing I think that's explored a little bit within this book but it's never really fully answered um and I think we talked about it a little bit in the last episode as well 
throughout the story, it's actually done kind of well, right? Because we don't, none of our real villains, we don't get to learn, like, we don't get to see the hardship that our real villains face. But through people like Mohan, through some of the strangers that Savitha ends up meeting, through the experience that Pornima has, actually like being a shepherd and being complicit in this sex trade, right? We get to see how hard the world is for these other characters. And these people, again, aren't the people who are doing the most atrocious cruelty. Mohan's father or brother or guru. But these are people who are complicit in the act. And even like with Savitha, when she's in Seattle with the other girls, one of the girls keeps taking her her sari, her half-made sari that she made for Purnima that she carries around kind of like a, you know, like a blankie almost as like her last piece of comfort. This girl keeps on taking parts of it to kind of punish Savitha. So, but she's also not, like, completely demonized, right? Because we get to see the struggle and hardship that she is facing as well. So I think that, like, this theme of just being in a cruel world and trying to carve agency for yourself or just, like, trying to survive, enhancing cruelty, I think is prevalent throughout the story. Yeah, I I totally I totally think so. I think that I think that a place that I push up against that sometimes is that I think that this book sometimes borders on the idea that like cruelty begets cruelty mm-hmm. and I just don't know how I feel about that in general, I suppose, or what the truth of that is, but I think that this book kind of hints at that at the very least. Um I think with Padma especially, who is the girl who was stealing parts of Savitha Sari, there's also this weird, I think, implication of, like, she's punishing her, yeah. But there's also this weird, like, self-soothing about it, too, on Padma's end, right? Like, as long as I can keep punishing Savitha for this then maybe things will change or, like, be okay. I don't know. I think it does handle the the concept relatively well. I don't know. My brain is not working at full capacity today, and it's it's (laughs) obvious. (laughs) No, I don't. I think you sound smart. I think it's... I'm not sure if it does it completely well, but I, I enjoy getting to see motivations behind my villains. Um, And I do kind of feel like that's the way the world works, but I also think that in most situations, unless you're, you know, dealing, like, with a situation where you have a gun to your head or somebody is, like, holding something over you, you do have free will and, like, kindness is always a choice and it's always the hardest choice to make. So I don't know. While we're speaking about kindness and that idea of, like, choice, how do we feel about Mohan as a character? I'm conflicted, I think. Because I also am not convinced that, like... I mean, first of all, the relationship between him and Savitha is extraordinarily complicated because he literally owns her to a certain extent. Even though he doesn't necessarily treat her in that same way, like with the same cruelty of his brother and his father, he's involved in what's happening here. And that power dynamic is messed up. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that the emphasis on what happened with Padma at the beginning of the story really makes me doubt whether Mohan feels the same way about Savitha that Savitha feels about him. I mean, I think he actually does feel that way about Savitha. But I also think that it's incredibly fucked up. And there's a quote that I'm trying to find in which Savitha realizes, right, that she's going to be coerced into sex with him. Because you have to, so here's why, let me just explain why I think he does feel that way about Savitha, even though there was that whole thing with Padma. When Padma was finally, like, when he finally had sex with Padma, he raped her. 
and that's very explicit and then it's kind of implied that that doesn't happen again and he's crying after it mohan as a character is just a whole whole lot to unpack but there seems to be a lot of implications that he is really suffering from being complicit in this violence and i think something that Pornima kind of deals with more explicitly is the fact that like he has more of a choice to not be complicit in this violence than he thinks he does and I think that we see that when she questions this poem that he has read over and over and over again about courage and how hard it is to choose courage and she's like no this sounds weak to me like you just choose courage and you go which if we're going to unpack even further, it could be kind of hypocritical from Pornima's standpoint because she has been complicit in violence as well, as we kind of talked about last episode. And I've been thinking about all week as we've been reading and being like, oh, Pornima has agency now and is still complicit in all of the these horrors. But there's something to the point that what you said... That Savitha says when she realizes that she's going to be coerced into having sex with Mohan. Because she just thinks that they're, you know, on a drive together and she's happy and they're friends. And then she realizes, like, this, this beautiful day that she's having suddenly turns not beautiful. Because she realizes that he wants sex and that she has to give it to him. All right, well, I can't find it. But anyway, she has this moment of realization that, like, he owns her. And that's the word she used. She was like, and then I understood that he owned me, essentially. And I think that that is also never resolved, right? Like, even though he goes and helps, he makes the choice to be brave and to help Pornima find Savitha, we never get to see any sort of resolution. Even though, like, we know that she still loves him, we never get to see this resolution of them being equal players, in the game yeah do we want to talk more about mohan or do we want to move on to the poetry yeah i don't know i i think that i'm just still not entirely convinced on like what was happening with him i think that the big takeaway from his character and as you were saying with pornima to a certain extent is lots of people think they're stuck between a rock and a hard place and and maybe they are to a certain extent but have more agency than they think they do and therefore are complicit. And Pornima, I think, is extra complicated because she, to save one, to a certain extent, she sacrifices others. She purposefully gets herself more and more embroiled in this business to save Savitha. Um, I think the thing with the, pro the poem, too, is interesting... The love song, uh, the love story of J. Alfred Prufrock. Have you read know, it? Many times. It's by <laughs> T.S. Eliot. I'm probably going to get a tattoo based on it. It's a good, it's a poem I like. I've never really read it as being a poem about courage, though, in the way that it's being interpreted here, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. New interpretations are always good. But I do wonder sometimes, uh, like rereading this, whether I think that Mohan was looking for almost like confirmation bias, right? Like, mm -hmm. he he uses this poem and the perceived meaning he takes from it to comfort himself that what he's doing is enough by essentially just not being a violent asshole all the time. I don't think he believes that, though. Otherwise, he wouldn't be so depressed. I think one thing before we, like, move on from Mohan that I want to talk about a little is I've said lots of lots on this podcast and I'm never backed up with any proof um, this idea that, like, being violent is bad and harmful to people who are enacting violence. And that is something that I deeply believe because I don't know if any of you have ever, like, truly hated before, but it's not fun. It doesn't feel good. Like, your body physically has a response to it. And, like, it's not, it's not fun to, to hate. It's not fun to, like, enact violence. It's not fun to be cruel or mean. At least... It hasn't been in my experience. But I think for Mohan, we get to see this this toxic masculinity playing out in a really real way, right? Like, most people might not show 
how painful it is to be a cog in the system because they might not have that sort of realization. But Mohan does. Like, he at least feels it and he's like, this sucks. And this is not okay. And his biggest life tragedy is figuring out that his father is complicit in this, that his father is this violent person and that everything he gives them and everything that's a part of Mohan's life is built off of this horrendous act of enslaving young woman. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's a lot, I don't want to like praise to a certain extent the bare minimum, but Mm -hmm. I think that oftentimes for people sometimes that moment of self-actualization can be the hardest because it completely shifts your worldview and your understanding of who, of like the foundations of your life and who you are. And I think that we see some of those consequences playing out in Mohan's character of like having those foundations shaken. And then Pornima is able to push that shaken foundation farther to say, no, you actually can do something other than just, like, sitting here and feeling bad for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And just to kind of, like, take that idea and then apply it to, like, ground it a little bit in the real world. So, like, when people discover, right, that Christopher Columbus didn't discover America and actually slotted a bunch of indigenous people, there's a lot of times this like feeling of no, that can't be true because it's so awful to realize that you are complicit in a violent system and your heroes are enacting violence, right? And that makes you a part of it. When we white people discover that racism still exists today, we're like, oh no, that can't be true. I can't be racist. But it's like, no, we you, you can because we live in a racist system that you benefit from. So I think that's kind of what Mo on a very, I I don't know, on a more singular level is dealing with here is this idea that this system is bad. And I think that even though we might think we're happy in this system, if even if we have a ton of privilege, we're not as happy as we could be because we're a part of this oppressive violence and you really can't, just ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to, to relate also, I think to the poem, which is where you're going, I think there's something about the ways in which actions and inactions have consequences. And that can be enough to paralyze a person, which I think is to a certain extent, maybe where Moan is at sort of this point in the book before Pornima convinces him to go Like, in the poem, one of the most famous lines is, Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. And then later it goes on to say, Do I dare to eat a peach? And I think that that's the the part that Pornima really picks up on as being, Yeah, all of your actions and things have consequences, but that's not an excuse to not do anything. Like, you have to dare to disturb the universe. That's beautiful. And I actually wasn't going for the poem. So do we want to talk a little bit more about this poem that you seem to have knowledge on? Because I want to talk about poetry as a concept because it reappears in the book in weird ways. (laughs) Uh, The love story of J.L. from Prefrock is probably a podcast episode in and of itself. T.S. Eliot, very strange and elitist man, pioneers a he and oh my god what's his face I can't even remember the other dude this is how much I dislike the other dude their whole thing was that to a certain extent they wanted to make poetry inscrutable so the love story of J. Alfred Prufrock like opens in Latin and like they're mixing in all different kinds of languages and it's a whole thing but I, I feel like for me that part of that poem really sticks out and part of that what I just quoted is referenced in the story as well but yeah, I'm okay to move on to poetry as a more general topic. <laughs> I think there's too much to say about proof rock for, for just right now. Okay, so this is a half-formed thought. It's not even a thought, but I'm going to read an excerpt that starts at 358 uh, and then goes on to 359. So it's in Sabitha. Uh, it's in towards the very end. It's Sabitha's, and it's, I believe, in the first chapter. So just to give context, Sabitha is traveling with this couple who she finds... In Spokane, I think. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she finds them in Spokane, sees that they're a rental car, 
has the plate numbers New York because she's desperately trying to get to New York because there was a nice lady there when she first got into JFK. And um, the couple's like, we're not going to New York, but uh, hey, we can take you a little bit east. And then they drop her off in the middle of nowhere, which I kept on reading that and being like, why are these people like you're you're nice enough to help her, but then you're just going to like leave her in the middle of nowhere? Like, what is what is going on? And I like it's it's more than I probably would have done if I had seen like a strange person in the street. I would have been like, no, you could murder me. I don't trust you. But yeah, anyway, anyway, so he tells her this weird, this weird ass story about a kid who becomes mute because he's molested by this teenage boy. And the kid we never hear about again, the guy says, but the guy that did the molesting ends up getting married and has two sons and the sons go to the desert where this kid had this horrible experience And they're playing with this other kid and they get blown up because they're playing with matches near a propane tank. And um, one of the kids ends up like dying and the other, I think, ends up a drug addict or something. So here is the quote that I want to read from that. It's on page 358. All right, sure, sure. You could say these things were random. Not all linked. That life isn't poetic like that. Hell, maybe it was all the mother's fault, the one who ran away with the traveling salesman. But I've got my money on poetry, on its symmetry. Sure, but also on its inadequacy, its meanness, its slaughter of lambs along with lions. Everything of value. Don't you agree? Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what the fuck was trying to be said. Um, I don't know if I like it, but I wanted to talk about it with you, Maggie. Yeah. I feel like there's a really sad implication there that life is such a cycle that in order to get justice for one act, likely there's going to be another cruelty happening sort of in that in while it's happening because the whole point right is that the dude who molests a little boy essentially ends up almost getting his comeuppance when his child dies but in order to get that justice so to speak quote unquote like the universe is poetic justice and another like innocent little boy dies horribly And I don't know what to make of that, or if it's even about justice at all, or if it's just about the fact that power structures are so inherently based in what we're up to that the lions and the lay, I don't know. I don't know. That's my, that's my stab at what was happening there. (laughs) No, I think that's a really good stab, Maggie. One of the words that I keep coming back to as I ponder this passage is the word inadequacy, right? Because, yes, the man who did the molesting, who grows up, like, he does get his comeuppance because he's sad now because his kids are dead or, like, struggling. But you're right. We, we still had to slaughter the lambs to get it. I don't know if I read it as justice so much as, like, this inevitable cruelty to the world that like no one is safe even the oppressors maybe and also inadequacy applies to me that there is no justice right and there's even a hint here that it was the little boy who went mute there's a hint here that it was his mother's fault for relinquishing him but we never hear about her again so she doesn't get any comeuppance. We don't know whether or not she's going through that cycle. It's just the oppressors and the oppressed are all going to cycle through the same thing in some fashion. And it always feels inadequate. It's kind of how I read it. I don't know if that's true. I, I agree with you. Like the inadequacy, the, the word inadequacy is like the key here. It's even, I mean, it's even emphasized in the text. Yeah. It's emphasized. Yeah, I think, too, that there's also this level of, like, there are such, there are things that you can do in the world that are frankly so terrible to other humans that it doesn't matter what happens to you afterwards. 
no quote unquote punishment, whatever, like poetic, poetic punishment that the universe comes up with is enough to like rectify those things for the person that you did it to. It's all just inadequate. It all just pales. And then that's intensified when the innocent, so to speak, get caught up in that. This conversation reminds me of something that happens right at the beginning of this part. Um, It's actually, the passage I'm looking at is on page 208, but it starts a little bit before that. And I'm not sure what part of this even feels relevant to me. But Savita, after she loses her hand, has a customer who says that he killed his brother. And he confesses that to her. And nothing ends up happening to him. He ends up escaping and living in the forest by himself. But then, like, for a really, really, really long time, and he sees a cobra and thinks it's his brother, and then tries to turn himself in. But then it turns out that the courthouse had a fire and there's no record of him ever having committed a crime. So he's free to go. And the thing he says right at the end of his story on page 208 is, I came home, he said, but by then both my parents had died from heartache, some said. But that's what people want to believe. It's more romantic that way. If I had to guess, I'd say my father died from rage and my mother from boredom. They were childless at the end of their lives, it's true, even after having had two sons. I wish I could have apologized to them for that. I wish for many things. But they must have searched, too, for the forest floor. So there's this idea that, like, there was no justice. It just happened. He had this spiritual experience in the forest looking for some sort of justice, I think with himself to reckon with the fact that he had killed his only brother and then the end just like his parents not dying from heartache they just died from rage and boredom right because like it it just makes the whole thing that more cruel and I see some sort of connection to the passage that we're reading about poetry with this story here I don't know what it is though (laughs) do you see anything I think it's about, like, I think part of the connection I see here is sort of the idea that, like, when you've committed a a heinous wrong, sort of fixing your own guilt and earning your own forgiveness to a certain extent isn't, or, like, continuing to suffer, I guess, over what you've done doesn't actually fix anything or serve consequences. And yet sometimes with the lack of justice in this world, that's all people get, right? Like, this guy has, like, this whole spiritual experience. He goes on, he tries to turn himself in, he can't. And that's all, like, the victim of his crime is gonna get, to a certain extent. Like, of course, he's his brother is dead, so it's not like he's actually going to get anything. But when we're talking, I guess, about the poetry, the inadequacy in the world that's all his memory ends up getting, you know? And I feel like that relates to the man from the first story, which is technically the second story chronologically in the book, because his suffering doesn't come from a place of, like, guilt, but having another wrong done unto him, and, like, that's inadequate, too. I also wonder, this might be a little too heady, But both of these stories, I feel like there's this meaning that's trying to be assigned to them when, in fact, they both kind of, to me, seem meaningless. Yeah, like the man from the the first story, from the one on page 208, who kills his brother, he has this spiritual experience. He has this whole thing with the forest floor. He sees his brother as a snake. And then at the end, there's just like, there's nothing There's no justice for him. His parents didn't die of heartbreak. Like, it's all just meaningless, right? 
And with the second story, the man who's telling the story, who does not seem to be related to the story at all, is thinking about it and he's like, yeah, there's some sort of symmetry there. You know, like they both were harmed in this way. But the word inadequacy makes me feel like we want to see meaning, right? Through these random occurrences. But at the end of the day, there's no, there is no meaning to either of it. Because now we just have meaning, like now we just have suffering. Like it feels very nihilistic to me, both of these stories. And this is a theme that I'm coming across in this book that is so hard to contend with because there's also this thread of hope throughout. And I I just, I don't know where to end up. Like we have hope, but we also have nihilism. So who knows? Like the world is meaningless, but also we assign meaning to it. And I don't know if there's something to be done with that. I think the thing that I do with that is the idea that, and maybe this is partially because uh, although, you know, my life experience is obviously very, very different than what the women in this book go through, but like, when you go through something traumatic, when you've suffered at the hands of somebody else, I think there is no, there is nothing that the universe can give to you that people, other people can give to you, potentially even the perpetrator can give you that can help you like heal and, and feel good and whole and that no amount of additional suffering fixes that. But what does fix that helps you heal is the love in your life and your friends and your family and your community and your home, whatever that looks like, right? Like I would say for Savitha and Pornima at the end, it's maybe three people, the two of them and Mohan. Um, but that's the, the thing that keeps them going and where they're able to find healing. I think potentially that theory falls apart a little bit because we don't actually know how Savith is going to react or what happens after they're reunited. But I think that that's potentially what the book was partially trying to imply, at least. That's beautiful. And I think I like that interpretation, even though I also feel like it's inadequate because there are some people who don't have love in this world, right? Like, we are lucky when we find people who we can give love to and who are willing to give love to us. But I think that that's, I think that that tracks as, as kind of a solution, right? Because when we love people, we're literally choosing to say that they're meaningful. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, on a macro level, you're right. This isn't the way it is for everyone, but I do think it's what the book is, is showing as a potential solution and I don't know, personally, it's like a, a thing that I track with as a human. So that's what I got. I mean, also Maggie not to, approved. <laughs> not, also not to get like too hippy dippy here, but I think if this philosophy were applied on a more macro level, right? Like if we choose to assign meaning to everyone, we would have a lot less ills in the world. And I think that one of the things that's hard with love is that it's like inherently hierarchical feeling, right? Because you're choosing to love somebody else versus all of these other people in the world. But if we're going to apply this to the text, I think we start to see when Savitha is traveling before her unfortunate encounter with the evil man with the gun, uh, we get to see like a hint of this, like people just being kind and therefore helping and those relationships, even though they're short-lived, could be somebody's cling to meaning, right? Like, even the woman that Savitha met in the airport who was kind to her once became the meaningful part. Like, that became an anchor for her. She then wanted to go back to New York because that was the only kind person she had encountered aside from Mohan in years, like, outside of Pornima. So I don't know. Yeah, I know. I completely agree with you. I think that that message gets even more intensified too, because Pornima, when she first meets Mohan and she's like trying to, can, she almost has a moment where she like breaks her facade before they've really started talking to each other. And she's trying to get him to bring her to the girls' apartments, essentially where they're kept. 
and she says they're loved you know like there are people in this world who care about him they have families they have friends they have connections and i feel like for pornima at the very least that idea that somebody in this world cares about you and you care about them is like very much her driving force forward and i think you're totally right about the hierarchical issue too which is what we get into with Pornima with the choices that she makes to save Savitha get to to sort of do whatever she has to. She she makes the choice that even though she has a little bit more agency in this situation potentially she puts Savitha over everyone else. Like that's the decision she comes to and that she needs to save her. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a valid analysis. I don't think I have anything else to do with that. I'm just going to, you know, ponder that for weeks on end now. <laughs> this is definitely one of those really, the one of those books that'll like stick to you, you know? Um, part of the reason I suggested it for the podcast, even though it had been a second since I read it, was because it's just one of those stories that every once in a while you like come back around to and you're like, huh, this had a lot to say about the human condition. I don't know that I like what it has to say <laughs> I, mean, I don't know that I like what it has to say either, but I don't like all parts of the human condition, so. That's fair. That's fair. Do do we want to, are we ready to, to question whether this is a feminist book? Or do we want to keep talking? Are there, is there more that we can unpack? You know, I, I think I'm kind of satisfied. I was going to take this episode a different direction and like follow up on some conversations that we had last week, but I think it went in a, in a, in a better better direction so i I feel i feel safe to move on to to the the climactic question do you think this is a feminist book i mean yes but also i'm like oh it was such a depressing book it was yes it is it is feminist right because we're talking about real world women's stories and everyone's story deserves to have a platform and i'm sure that even though this is a fictitious book, there are a lot of women with stories like Pornima and Savitha's that aren't told quite enough. Um, but I would love, I would have loved a more joyous story. <laughs> the book's messaging is very inexplicit and that's good because it makes it more realistic. But had it been more explicit even, like I think it could have been more inherently feminist because we would have been able to attach more meaning to it. In some ways, I sort of feel like this book is like the Joker movie and that like you watch it and you're like, what is meaning? What is world? Life is suffering. Um, but it's not. And, you know, we did something empowering together by like trying to dissect the meaning of this book. And I, I, I'm satisfied to where we came with it. And yes, it's inherently feminist because it's the story of two girls who love each other and... Who are trying to stand in solidarity with one another yeah that was long-winded <laughs> yeah i'm with you i think i almost appreciate though the fact that this book didn't get more explicit with that messaging and i think it's because of the fact that i know that rao based this story off of real women's stories and off of real research and i think it's important that it leaves it kind of unanswered because I'm sure that in the real woman's life who like the real lives of the woman that she talked to that for them it's kind of unanswered too and that things feel gray and bad you know about those experiences sometimes still yeah uh and I think it would have been inauthentic for Rao as the outsider to like answer that but overall I think that this was a feminist story even though it gets really dark and deals with some really hard themes. But sometimes the world is dark and we need to like be able to face that. Ugh, even though I don't want you. It's good. Yeah. It's good for us to face this. And at least we're doing it together. It's true. I was alone out there the first time I read this book. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That's depressing. It's all good. I was just kidding. But yeah, you know, I think especially when and this isn't to say that women in the united states aren't in danger of becoming victims of sex trafficking because we know that's untrue but 
as as women who live very outside of this context, I think sometimes it's a good reminder to be like, yeah, you should almost like check your own privilege and be like, okay, you know, there's a, the there's a, a wide scale of experiences in the world, and it's useful sometimes to have that reality check of like what reality you're living in and then hopefully use that power and that privilege to make it so that women don't have to experience anything like this ever again no matter where they live yeah yeah which is a whole another conversation how we do that we're not smart enough to make any recommendations but please be careful about it and don't be careful of any Western organization trying to use that power and privilege to make the world more better, just in general, because it can get real tricky, and that might not actually help the lives of people. Yeah, real real colonialist. <laughs> real fast. Uh, what are you reading right now, Maggie? I'm reading Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell. What about you? I'm reading a lot of books on accident. So I'm reading the book that we're reading next week, which here, let me just give everyone the pages real quick that we're reading up to. So we're reading The Passion of Mary Magdalene next week. And I'm so stoked about it because you're all going to see what shaped me as a human. Um, and it might be <laughs> might be kind of shocking and horrifying for a lot of you. Uh, where did I send you the pages? I don't know. We talked for a really long time after that. I'm like low key kind of nervous to read this book. It's a real harmony favorite, and I've been hearing about it for eight years, and now I'm finally gonna read it myself. I don't expect and I feel like you to like a lot it. Of, like wait, yeah. You don't need to I mean, love I know. it. It's it's like it's not the best book in the world. I'm not gonna lie. Like you, you, I don't expect you to love it, but I do think that it will be interesting for you to read. And you're gonna be like, you read that at twelve, and then all of the cogs are going to like shift into place, and you'll be like, this is how the harmony was born, and that's what I'm excited for. The last little puzzle pieces of 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 what made Harmony Birch are just gonna click in my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm really, really excited for. It's like I love this book dearly and I'm glad that I get to introduce it to people. But like for Maggie, the real the real drive for this is to make Maggie read this book so she can truly understand me. <laughs> this is the missing link. <laughs> so we're gonna read up to page two two oh nine with that. Um I'm also reading the the here let me let me get up my libby oh my god (laughs) actually i started with libro on accident so i'm also reading magic lessons by alice hoffman and then i'm also reading do 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 the b a duke the lady and a baby by vanessa riley and i'm reading the year of the witching by alexis henderson yeah, I know. I'm excited about it. I'm real excited. Uh, and then kind of off and on, almost like as a podcast substitute, I am also reading, and I, re- I read it today, so this is why I'm sharing with you all, but I've been, I've been reading it for a while. It's called Tending Bridget's Flame, Awakened to the Celtic Goddess of Hearth, Temple, and Forge by Luena Weatherstone. There we go. That's a mixture. I cannot wait to hear about what you think of The Year of the Witching. I aggressively love that book. (laughs) So fucking good. I'm enjoying it so far. I'm not very far along, but, like, we just... I mean, spoilies, never mind. We'll we'll talk about it off air. Sounds Um, good. Yeah, is, is that all, folks? Oh, homework. We forgot to do homework. Homework. What is my homework this week? To be honest with you, I gotta be selfish this week, and I think that... uh, my homework this week is to just kind of like batten down and survive. I have, I'm at the end, I'm in the middle of a very, very, very busy work week with a lot of chaos going on. Um, and if I don't take space to take care of myself, I'm not going to be able to help anyone else. So I got to just like focus on making sure that Maggie doesn't die this week. <laughs> I think our homework is really like embellic or, or not em- it, our homework showcases how different we are as people because Maggie's is primarily non-selfish and mine is like always some sort of like self sort of like thing even when I'm doing something for others it's like okay well I'm doing this to help my growth as a human this way so going along with that theme (laughs) uh, I've been thinking a lot about the ways that 
people make meaning for themselves. And it's it's almost springtime as we're recording this. So I'm going to kind of make a, a, a action plan for myself going forward because we are living in a meaningless, chaotic world that will help me try to make more meaning for the world in general. So it's going to be like my spring cleaning my spring cleaning plan of 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 action and meaning making. I dig it. I dig yeah. it. That's a good concept. Yes. Okay. All right. Again, Passion of Mary Magdalene, page whatever I said before. And it's like uh, 219 or something. 219 or something. And I think that's all, folks. Is that that's all, folks? That's all, folks. Yeah. Talk to you all next week. Bye. <laughs> Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.